0: Welcome to Hashtag CNF, a conversation about reading and writing with authors in the genre of creative nonfiction. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Tom McAllister is the author of Bury Me in My Jersey, a memoir of my father, football, and Philly. He's also the co-host of the Wildly Entertaining Book Fight podcast and a professor at Temple University. Most recently, he's the editor of Bring the Noise, a collection of the best pop culture essays from Barrelhouse magazine. Bring the Noise, to sum up McAllister's hilarious introduction, is a treatise on the stupid things we love. Yes, there's the stupid things we love, but Bring the Noise shows how beautiful these stupid things are, one in the hands of 17 artful storytellers whose personal stories elevate popular culture to the adult table. In it, you'll find professional wrestling, roller derby, Barry Bonds, and the never-ending reality of the hills, and, in true Barrow House style, the Patrick Swayze question. It is my great pleasure to welcome Tom McAllister to Hashtag CNF. Tom, thanks for, being, thanks for coming aboard.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, man.
0: So what brought you to want to make your first book through Barrel House a book about your best pop culture essays?
1: Um, I think the main thing is that for a long time, I mean, kind of our defining characteristic for a lot of people is our pop culture thing. And all of our essays and every issue we've ever published is, uh, every essay is uh, pop culture related in some way. And so we thought if we're launching a book line, we should do something very barrel housey we had a few other kind of book pitches and some other ideas that we thought about starting with but we thought it would be good to start with something that's very i guess to sound like a business student very kind of on brand you Mm -hmm. know and so plus we just love a lot of those essays and uh, we were excited to have a chance to bring them back out because some of them like you know None of us even has a copy of Issue 1, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And so it'd be, it was nice. We all love the essay from that one. That's the Magnum PI one by Steve Kistelins, mm-hmm. And so yeah. uh, we thought it'd be great to kind of give those things a new life. And as it turns out, um, it's been a really useful tool for uh, things like AWP. When people ask, you know, what's your aesthetic? What are you into? We can say, well, here it is. Here's our favorite things we've ever published. And so we think it's a good representation of what we've done for the past almost decade.
0: How and why did these essays make the cut?
1: First, we wanted to pick one from every issue. That ended up not quite happening, because uh, there was a couple issues where we wanted, I think it was our fifth issue, the dive bar issue, we wanted at least two from there, because that's, we all tend to agree that's our best nonfiction issue. Hmm. Um, so, but we wanted, we had a vote for the first, for the inclusions from the first ten. Every one of us uh, just nominated the ones we loved. For most of them, it was easy. Um, there was a clear-cut winner in some of them, like the Barry Bonds one you mentioned has already been anthologized in the Best American Nonrequired Reading and I think somewhere else. And so we knew that was going to be in there.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and even though it was it was kind of a very timely essay when it was published in, I think, 05 or 06, I think a lot of that stuff still resonates. As If you just replace Barry Bonds' name with Lance Armstrong or something, yeah. a lot of the same stuff that gets discussed is there. Um then I kind of had free reign for anything that was new. We had the other guys had the opportunity to chime in if they wanted, but the way Barrel House works, I've quickly learned, is that you send an email out, invite people to join in, and if they don't, you just go ahead and do it and <laughs> let them catch up later. Um, so all the new stuff was picked by me. And what, I guess what I look for to, to better answer your question is um, I read a lot of essays when I'm reading submissions and a lot of them are technically sound and interesting enough, but there's no sense of urgency. It doesn't feel like there's anything on the line for the writer. Like it just seems almost like a creative writing exercise that they did really well. And Mm -hmm. what I really liked about the new ones, there's, um, Leslie Jill Patterson's one. It's about, it's kind of a lyric essay that mixes up some stuff. I shouldn't say mashes up. That's a whole different thing. Uh, (laughs) that, that mixes up, discussion of real-life domestic abuse issues with the way popular culture represents those things and I thought and, and it also mixes up some clearly personal stuff of her her time working in a, a shelter for abused women or her time living in one and I thought it was really great if it seemed like there was some stuff on the line there for the writer where um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know she was pouring something into it beyond just you know time there was there was a, an emotional kind of appeal to it which I guess is what I like a lot about it. The wrestling one is in there. I think it has a lot of those same appeals, but also as soon as I took over as nonfiction editor, I made it my mission to find someone to write me a good wrestling essay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was pushing for a really long time to make issue 12 our wrestling issue, but nobody, that didn't take. Mm mm-hmm. hmm. <laughs> yeah,
0: Barrelhouse Mania. Or something. <laughs>
1: yeah. It would be great. Uh, then I, I, I met um, Todd Canico, who wrote that essay. At AWP, I think, and he was reading poems about dead wrestlers, and I said, I charged him as soon as he finished, and I said, "You have to be, you have to be in the barrelhouse business." You know, this is (laughs) this is too perfect a fit.
0: And what is it you think about pop culture? Uh, What about pop culture that says so much about us?
1: I think, and I think this is a a sentiment shared by all of us in the thing. Part of it is that what part of our embrace of the pop culture thing is that we are turned off by the portion of literary culture that is too cool for pop culture. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think one of our founders, Dave Housley, in an interview recently said something like, uh, we wanted to be the people, if we were at a party, we wanted to talk to the people who were talking about what was great on TV last night, not the people saying we don't own TVs. (laughs) And uh, so there's that. It's kind of an acknowledgement of what's going on around us. And I think also the truth is that, as much as we would love it if we were all shaped by the classics and to an extent we kind of are, most of us, a lot of our formative experiences are built around these really stupid things. Uh, you know, these, <laughs> yeah. you know uh, I remember I was going to put this in the little intro and it turned out it's not a true thing until like a couple months ago, I was under the impression that during the transformers movie, the cartoon from the eighties
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, with Orson Welles as the narrator, um, I was under the impression that Bumblebee, this little car, had died, because my brother told me that, uh, and I remember it being inconsolable for for days. You know, I was in, I was crying, I was upset that Bumblebee was dead. Uh, as it turns out, he didn't die, and my brother is just a liar. But uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, those sorts of things shouldn't affect us the way they they do, and yet they do. And I think they inform the way we treat each other. You know, I. Deal with college freshmen, and most of the way they uh, interpret the world is based on things that they've learned from movies and 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 music and TV and stuff. So, I think it's an honest way of dealing with with the world.
0: Yeah, and I, I recently read a piece on Grantland. com about Super Mario Brothers. It's the twentieth anniversary of that god awful movie that, <laughs> I loved that that they
1: movie when I was in school.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh,
1: Bob Hoskins.
0: Yeah. And uh, yeah, and uh, John Leguizamo and yeah. Dennis Hopper as Bowser or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there, just as I was reading the essay, and uh, the woman who wrote it was was still she, you know, put in some YouTube about the the classic Super Mario Brothers, and just in reading about that, it, I was seven years old sitting sitting cross-legged in front of my TV, you know, clicking away trying to beat all these eight freaky tri- trippy world and throwing my controller up against the wall and chipping the hard wall so there's this uh the chipping the drywall and um there's this nostalgic quality that uh, a popular culture thing can can bring to the forefront knows maybe you can talk to that as well of uh how it kind of it brings you back to a time and once you get, get removed from it uh you can see it through a completely different lens
1: yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about a couple of the essays that we have in there, like the Magnum P.I. one that we all like. Is mm-hmm. that, you know, the Steve is reflecting on how he and his dad used to watch Magnum P.I., and he's realizing now, 40 years later, 30 years later, whenever he wrote it, um, or whatever age he was when he wrote it, uh, that it meant a whole different thing uh, to him. And I think that's... Uh, in reading nonfiction, that's one of the things that most interests me is, is, is this... Um, disconnect between the way different people view the same exact things. And, you know, that's a lot of what I have my students work on, is trying to have them do exercises or read short pieces where it's, you know, you could have four different people four people in the same room seeing the same exact thing and interpret very different, and have very different interpretations. And you know, it's the same thing like you just said, over time your interpretation changes. You know, the person I was when I was 12 is very different than I am now, and I hope (laughs) Uh, you know that, I think that's a valuable exercise, and it also invites the reader to reflect, if not even if the re- reader doesn't have some personal memories of Magnum Pi, it invites them to reflect on their, their own cell, their own kind of pop culture obsession from when they were 10 or the thing they shared with their father or their mother or whoever you know mm-hmm. And pop culture writing, I feel it
0: balances on this thread. Like, it can be great, but it doesn't take much for it to just fall off and devolve. Like, what do you think are the challenges in writing well about pop culture?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I think you mentioned the uh, Grantland, uh, uh, and it's that site is I think a p- perfect illustration of the dichotomy. I cu- like, I have a hard time with that site because some of the stuff on there is amazing writing, yeah. and like they just give these writers free reign to just write as much as they want about this thing they're obsessed with, which turns out great. And then sometimes it's like the most insipid, shallow things. I don't know, even know, understand. Some of the headlines that are like fantasy drafts for people on reality fashion shows. I don't <laughs> yeah. even know what that means. And um, so I think there's there's always a risk, and I see this in submissions too of people um, kind of going for the cheap joke, sometimes or, or not realize, never going beyond just pointing out interesting things about the culture. You know, even if some we might sometimes people will send us. Things that almost look like they were drawn from a thesis, and sometimes probably were drawn from like a doctoral thesis, that are really good deconstructions of the matriarchal values and all in the family or something, but they're not interesting to read. Mm-hmm. And even more than that, I think what they neglect when it comes to creative nonfiction or literary nonfiction or whatever term people use, I think anything that's that I feel described as literary usually has some human relationships at the heart of it mm-hmm. and so the pop culture is used as a way to talk about something else like uh in the in the bring the noise uh one of my favorites it's the first one i ever accepted as the barrel House nonfiction editor uh was sarah sweeney's one about stalking kind of stalking adrian grenier before he yeah. became famous yep And that's really all about, I mean, there's some stuff about Adrian Grenier and 17 Magazine and whatever, but it's really all about her dissolving friendship with her best friend who turns out to be kind of a crazy person. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the sort of thing I like. I I like it as an entry point, but not as kind of the end end point.
0: And, um, you know, what is, has been kind of changing gears just a little bit. um, What has being a teacher of creative writing done to help your approach to the craft of writing?
1: Um, It has made me a lot harsher on my writing. Because I can see even the best undergrad, even the most dedicated undergrad is going to often write some stuff that is just not interesting. Mm-hmm. And it makes me, it forces me to think about, it's very easy, you know, especially if you're an undergrad, a lot of them haven't done a ton of writing. So it's the first stories they've written and they're just excited, they're kind of intoxicated by the thought of telling stories. And even though people don't read books, there's this still this cultural capital to being a writer. They just tell stories that nobody's ever going to care about. And so then I have to force myself to to read my own writing the same way, I think, with that same kind of harsh, detached eye as if I'm grading it, basically. The other thing it's made me think about more is different forms. uh, Because the students, often one of the benefits of them being total novices is that they just do wildly bizarre things sometimes that don't work, Mm -hmm. usually. But the bizarre things are totally worthwhile experiments. Uh, because they're just like, you know, they're just saying like figuring out what this thing is, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so it's it's allowed me as a writer, the free, you know, it's the thing every writer says that like, you should be willing to write bad work and you'd be ready to fail and stuff. But I have a hard time actually living, you know, practicing that mm-hmm. uh, because I, you know, I stress myself out over this thing and it needs to be perfect. And it's actually freed me up a little bit uh, to just like do some daily writing that is not any good uh, with the intent of it eventually being someday good. But to feel more comfortable with failure, mm-hmm. uh, I think seeing the students' consistent failure to write publishable work, uh, which is not a criticism of them, to see that consistent failure helps me to accept my own.
0: Yeah, and um, I wanted to touch upon, too, the epigraph to your memoir, the, the Kerr quote, and I'll just read it here. It says, um says, I feel and think, much as you do, care about many of the things you care about, although most people don't care about them. You are not alone. And I wanted to ask you what the inspiration for that quote was.
1: Um, okay, two inspirations. One is, I guess, this doesn't make me that unique. Like many high school and college age guys, I was obsessed with Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read Slaughterhouse-Five, and it, I feel like it actually changed my brain. <laughs> you know, uh, I, it, uh, it changed the way I did everything, uh, for better and worse. And um so he's always his writing has always been a major influence and so I thought especially in a memoir in which a lot, a lot of the stuff I talk about is my kind of journey as a writer I thought it would be it would make sense to have him be there but also thematically with that book it's all it's you know it's all about um, my obsession with with the Eagles uh, that's for, for listeners that's the uh, NFL's Eagles not the band but <laughs> um, <laughs> it's all about Joe Walsh yeah. and, uh, it's, uh, it's, it was all about my session with this football team and the way I kept trying to create new communities for myself I rea- I didn't realize till later when I was writing it that I'd spent a long time I was able when I was trying to organize the thing to realize that a lot of the chapters broke down into me setting up a community I tried to join and, and either failed to join it or, or kind of ingratiated myself and so I realized that a lot of my story was just one of trying to find a place where it felt okay to be interested in the things I was interested in and, um, you know, with varying degrees of success. And so I thought that was that, that, that line, I think kind of summed that up really well. And I think that's at the heart of a lot of Vonnegut's writing. A lot of his stuff is about, I I forget which book it is now, maybe slapstick where he talks about, um, there's this this kind of running gag of people saying they're from the Hoosier State, and they are they kind of become friends just because they're from Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's
0: kind of the mind. one where they they want everyone to you know wear name tags and yeah, and everyone
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that like constant that need to reach out and just have someone say like you're not crazy to think the
0: things that you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is at the heart of that book, and I
1: think it's a really pretty. Powerful universal message. Actually,
0: you speak of the your evolution as as a writer and, and teacher, and I can also kind of as you're looking to evolve Barrelhouse further, going into this more or less book book division too. Um, I, I kind of I see the reflection of Nick Sweeney's, which has been uh, you know Dave Eggers' imprint for for a while now. Is what um, have you drawn any inspiration, or uh, well, I guess just inspiration from from what they're doing and how they're approaching. Uh, Book publishing and book design.
1: Yeah. Oh God. We would love to be as successful as McSweeney's. That's for sure. Uh, We talked last time. We had. uh, We all live in different places now, mostly. um, Except for Mike, uh, my book fight Mm co-host. He he lives around here. But um, we have what we call corporate retreats, like once every six months, and we get together and we kind of solve all our issues and 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 drink a lot of beer and. one of the things we talked about there was, as it turns out, we were all talking about, like, well, we nobody makes money selling literary journals, we just do it, and we make money to support the journal. And as it turns out, McSweeney's actually does make most of their money from the journals, which, surprised, I actually thought that even, I thought that nobody actually made money off of them. Yeah. Um, and especially with how much money they must spend on the design, which is, is amazing. Uh, we've talked a lot about, after that, we talked a lot about Design, especially because, you know, we were really happy with the people who did the work on design for us, but in the past we've kind of punted on it because none of us has any real sense of how to do good design work and we've had volunteers do it. And we've now are fortunately financially stable enough that we've been, we paid a designer for the book. We wanted to launch the book to be as good as possible. And I love the cover of that book. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah. She, she did a great job. Anastasia, uh, Anastasia Miller, I think is her last name. I should know. Um, and we're gonna we're we're paying someone to design the next couple of issues of Barrel House, too because we do want to step up the design game. We felt like there was a point in the beginning where we were ahead of the curve on design, and then we kind of plateaued and everyone passed us, and so we're <laughs> we're trying to catch up uh, because there are so many journals, right? And I don't even know what most of them are, and I don't know how to decide what to read, and. So, one area where you can make yourself stand out a little bit is with, with more inviting design. Uh, so, we've definitely taken some inspiration from McSweeney's and Tin House and those other types of, on, on that level.
0: Yeah, it goes to just even walking through a bookstore, AWP, seeing all those literary journals, all these authors, and everyone's, as hard as it is to publish books, there's so many books out there, and it's yeah. how do you stand out? And I guess it ultimately boils down to having, having great content, but even then, you still have to get people to notice that you have good content.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I just did. Um, I have an interview. Uh, Treehouse Magazine interviewed me about some, uh, some stuff about the book, and, and, and they asked, like, basically that question. They said, There are so many journals, why should we read you? And I had a really hard time answering that question because I wanted to say, well, because the writing's really good. Mm-hmm. But that's not really much of a sales pitch. I don't know that I gave a, actually an adequate answer to them. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> essentially, what, I think one of my things was that we pay writers now, so you're supporting writers and us. But um, <laughs> the uh, it's a hard it's a hard thing to to say because we we're really proud of the work, but then like yeah, you were an AWP, you saw the tables, you know. Yeah. How do you pick one of seven hundred tables to to spend your money at? Um, and that's uh, my experience working the table. There is most of the sales either happen with people who come in the beginning of the day and don't realize they should budget and just blow their money at their first couple tables, <laughs> right. or people who wait till the last day and run around looking for deals. Um, and, and then there's this huge dead space in between where just a bunch of literary zombies wander around.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I, I can't let you get out of here uh, without asking you uh, what your favorite Patrick Swayze movie is.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm kind of a pariah with the Barrow House guys in that I don't love Patrick Swayze like they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always default to um, Dave Housley, I think, in a very unironic way, just loves Patrick Swayze. Um, I, I, I think I always default to Roadhouse primarily because it's such a lunatic premise. Uh, this, like, famous. I think Chuck Klosterman has a great essay about it, right? But this this idea of this, like, famous bouncer, uh, <laughs> yeah. of, you know, the whole thing is crazy uh, and very entertaining. It, it, although, if I had to say one that, like, I actually really enjoyed growing up, it wouldn't be a movie, it would be the this, the famous Swayze Farley Chippendales thing on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> All right. Uh, that would be the one that, that, that was probably my first non-ghost experience of patrick swayze
0: well tom McAllister is the non-fiction editor of barrel house magazine and editor of bring the noise the best pop culture essays from barrel house magazine it is published by barrel house books tom thank you so much for covering out some time this afternoon
1: yeah thanks for having me man